0: ages 4 to 7 dismissed to junior church and there are clipboards up here for
1: those 8 and 9 year olds
2: Well, I'm grateful my voice is a little stronger this week. I found I can can sing bass now. Um, I don't know if I do it well, but I can do it. We're continuing on in the book of Luke, following last week's uh, account of the empty tomb. And you're probably wondering, St. Greg, you're doing... Verses 13 through 34. Maybe I should have waited a little longer to put my food in the oven today. I'm going to try not to take forever. We'll see. So my plan is to walk through this. There are There's one major point I want you to get from this. In the title of the message is the scripture is sufficient. So as we, we go through this text and examine it, That's the big takeaway I want you to see, that even Christ himself comes to these men and points to the scriptures for the source of their hope. And that's what I want you to take away from this message today. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for this opportunity to to preach. Thank you that we can celebrate that Christ is risen. We thank you for this this text that we have that we can draw from it we thank you that we for your word uh, help us to to glean from it today for it to affect our lives to give us hope in Jesus name amen <clears throat> so I'm not going to read through this completely again but we'll just we'll get started here now. If you go through, one of the tools I grabbed when I approached this Easter series was what's called a Harmony of the Gospels. And one of the really nice things that a Harmony of the Gospels does is it takes all the Gospel accounts, we have the four accounts, and it breaks them into a chronological order and puts them all on the same page so you can sit and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John as they all talk about the same event in some places, or where only one talks about one event. And what I found is, so this, on the road to Emmaus, Luke gives an in-depth account of this. Mark gives like a brief two-verse, just quick synopsis. The other gospel writers don't have a mention of it. Um, so this is the greatest in-depth account in Luke of the, this trip to Emmaus. There's not been much that has transpired from the empty tomb until now. The thing that we don't have in Luke is that you have the account of Mary uh, mistaking Jesus for the gardener and him having an interaction with her, right, telling her not to cling to him but to meet him and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, and she goes to the to the disciples, and they they don't believe her. But this starts out, verse 13, and it says, that very day. So this is still the same day as them finding the tomb to be empty. This is still on Sunday, the day of the resurrection. But it tells us that two of them are going to a village named Emmaus. And so who are these two? Who are two of them? Well, two of them, they are disciples, but they are not of the group that we formally think of as the disciples. We are now down to 11 disciples. Now that Judas has betrayed Jesus, he is no longer within that group of 12. We are down to 11. But these two are not part of that group of 11. These would be other disciples. Christ had many disciples, followers of him, those who were being disciplined in the way of the Lord. These two are not part of that 11, but they are part of his group of disciples. And the reason we know that these two are not part of the 11 is one thing. In verse 18, it tells us that one of them was named Cleopas. And we know that is not a name of one of the 11. But also in verse 33, when we get to the end of this passage... It says that they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, those who were with them gathered together. So these two are not part of that group of 11. We don't know who the second person was in this group. There's speculation, but there's no actual scripture evidence. Some people say, well, it was the, the wife of Cleopas. Some, it was his friend. It, there's, there's no scriptural evidence we can point to to say who the second, second person traveling was. <clears throat> But they are going to a village called Emmaus. And it tells us it's about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem. We, we don't know exactly where Emmaus was. Uh, we know it was probably northwest of Jerusalem, but we don't have an exact location. We don't, have any, we don't have historical information on exactly where Emmaus was other than it was seven miles from Jerusalem. But thinking about, so how long does a seven-mile journey on foot take? Right, by people who are used to journeying on foot, it could take two to three hours. Right, If you had to walk from here to roughly Westfield or to roughly Northeast, and you did it continually, some of us would be like, I could not do that in two to three hours. <laughs> Others who are used to walking a lot would be like, yeah, we could do that in a couple hours, right? No big deal. So this journey is about two to three miles. Two to three hours, sorry, seven miles. But it tells us as they're walking, as they're making this journey, it doesn't tell us necessarily the purpose of their journey to Emmaus. It just says that they are going to Emmaus. You can speculate about lots of different things, why they may be going there, right? If they were disciples, they were, they were in, if they are good Jews, they were in Jerusalem for the Passover. They may be returning home to Emmaus. That may be where they call home. Or their home may be in Galilee, and they may be returning to Galilee by way of going towards the Mediterranean Sea in order to avoid the area of Samaria. We, we don't know. But they're going to Emmaus. That is their objective. That is their goal. But it says, as they're going, it says in verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What are all these things that had happened? What is the, what is the context of this passage? What is the history? What's going on, right? We had just read the beginning of chapter 24 last week, studied it, and it, we looked at the empty tomb, right? Christ was crucified, and now the tomb is empty. But if you, you look further into the text, verses 18 through 24, when they start to interact with Christ, now they, they say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in deed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said, but him they did not see. So this is what they are discussing. They are discussing Jesus, who they thought, they say, we thought he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're discussing this. We thought this Jesus was the Messiah, and yet we saw him arrested. We saw He's been put on trial. He was sentenced to death. He was beaten. He was crucified on a cross. He died, was laid in a tomb. And now we, we've heard rumor that that tomb is empty, but, but we don't know about this thing, right? This is what's going on. They're distraught. They're, this, all this is active in their minds. It's, it's what's happening. It's what they are discussing, all these things that had happened. Christ, him crucified. But in verse 15, it tells us, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So as they're talking, traveling down the road, Jesus apparently comes in and just starts walking with them, right? Which, on one hand, it's kind of funny that Jesus comes and just jumps into their group, right? But on the other hand, if you are a single traveler and there's two other travelers on the road, and you're making a, a couple-hour journey. You're like, well, why don't I go walk with these guys? It seems it's a, what I would point to is this is a normal behavior. It's not like all of a sudden this strange guy just jumps in. Like, well, here's two guys. Let's, they're having a conversation. Let them, why don't I talk with them? We'll go pass the time together on our journey, right? It'll, it'll make this two- to three-hour walk go faster. It's normal behavior. But Jesus enters. And there's also, it's also a normal behavior, because as you're traveling on an open road, would you rather be a group of one or a group of three? You'd rather have the protection that comes from a group. Again, it's a normal behavior. It's not, this is not out of the ordinary. It's not an odd thing for, for a single traveler to come jump in with two other travelers. <clears throat> so Jesus drew near and went with them. But in verse 16, it tells us, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him so they don't know that it is Jesus and it says their eyes are kept from recognizing him mark the other account of this the very brief account in verse mark 16 verse 12 it says he appeared in a different form to two of them so there's their eyes are kept from recognizing him he does not appear to them as the Jesus that they would know. They look at him, they do not see Jesus. It is, it is supernaturally controlled. But so so why are they prevented from recognizing Jesus? Right? Why why would Jesus, why would their eyes be prevented from recognizing him? Why is why does he appear in a different form to two of them? And I think as you study through the rest of this passage, you, you see why they don't immediately recognize Jesus. Because as you read further, you see that Christ is revealed to these disciples through the truth of the Scriptures, not just by seeing him, not by recognizing him, but through the revelation of God's Word. They see that he is Christ because of the Scriptures. And seeing and experiencing Christ is not a bad thing, but our emotions and our senses can be deceived. And what these disciples needed was for the word of God to be made clear to them, for their minds to be open to the truth of God's word. They didn't need just a simple encounter of seeing the risen Christ. They needed it to be proven to them from the scriptures. This Jesus was the Messiah. But as they're walking along in verse 17, it says, and this is Christ speaking, it says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So if Jesus is God, does Jesus really need to gain knowledge of what they're talking about? Right? He, he's aware. He knows what they're discussing. It's a probing question. It's meant to draw out of them their thoughts to set up what is to come. The The... This interaction where Christ reveals himself through the scriptures. Tell me what you're talking about. Tell me why you are distraught. Because it does go on and says, and they stood still looking sad, right? What are you talking about? And they stop walking, and they stand there, and it's obvious that there's sadness on them. They're in a dejected state. Their grief is intense. They've lost this Jesus, whom they thought was the Messiah. All their hopes and dreams have been dashed. He is dead, they think. But in verse 18, it says, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So this is so well known throughout Jerusalem. (laughs) Like, Are you the only one who doesn't know? You're apparently coming from Jerusalem because this is the road that must lead from Jerusalem to to Emmaus. So how are you possibly leaving Jerusalem and you don't know about this? The only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And he goes on, verse 19, Christ says, what things? What What are you talking about? Let me draw some more out of you. Let me... Get the juices flowing. Tell me more. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They acknowledged Christ as the prophet. And they, and they had seen the things he had done. And they had heard the things he had said. But verse 20 says, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. If you are a good Jew, the last thing you expect is for your religious leaders to kill the Messiah. It doesn't make sense. But that's what happened. Delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We haven't discussed much, but be- crucifixion was like a terrible, not only was it really bad way to die, just physically, but it was a bad way to die from, like, the, the view of the culture, you know, to anyone who hangs on a tree is despised, it was, there was much shame involved with being crucified, so not only is the Messiah killed, but he's killed by crucifixion, he's, he's killed in, like, the most shameful way that you could be, happen at that time, verse 21 says says but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they had hoped he would redeem Israel. So the question you have to ask is what do they mean when they say that? What what is meant by he would be the one to redeem Israel? And you gather as you look through the gospel accounts and how they interact with the Messiah that they expected a Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans, that the Messiah would be one who would deliver them from authoritarian rule, set up a righteous political kingdom, kick out the Romans, establish the nation state of Israel again, reestablish that that kingdom of Israel. And so the Messiah dying doesn't work into that. It just doesn't compute, right? So they had a false assumption of what the Messiah would do, and so then when the Messiah does what he's supposed to do, it no longer fits. And then they, they recount again, besides this, it is now the third day since these things happened i don't it's hard to say there i don't know if they're pointing towards they remembered some of the christ talking about he would rise on the third day or if there's it's been 3 days what do we do some of our women, the women in our company, of our company amazed us right they were at the tomb early in the morning when they did not find his body they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So they recount what we had talked about last week of the empty tomb and the women witnessing that empty tomb. But it seemed that they are not sure what to make of it. They, they don't know what this is. They're still without hope. And they're even saying some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So we've heard the account of the empty tomb. We've heard that. But we haven't seen the risen Messiah, right? We want to see, if he is truly risen, we want to see him. We want, that is our proof that we're looking for. We want to, we want to see this Messiah risen because if we are going to see the, the kingdom inaugurated now, if we're going to see Israel rise to power and the Romans thrown out, this Messiah will have to come back physically, he would have to rise from the dead because that's the only hope we have right now of him doing that. You know, but but we but verse 24 it says, But him they did not see, right? We still haven't seen him. We've heard the account of the empty tomb. We haven't seen the Messiah again. But then you have in verse 25 Christ's response. And he said to them, After all this account. He says, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." So he calls them foolish. <laughs> this silliness, right? You're you're all dejected, and that is foolish response. And, and verse twenty-six. Gives why he says they're foolish. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is a foolish response to what has happened because if you understood the scriptures, you would know everything happened exactly how it was supposed to. You don't need to see him, you need to understand the scriptures. The suffering and death of the Messiah were laid out in the scriptures, and to not believe them is to not believe the prophets, and to not believe the prophets is a foolish thing. That is why he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Believe the scriptures. And then it goes on, after he says in verse 26, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying, was it not necessary? When he says it's necessary, this is what the scriptures have foretold. It was in there. Christ himself talked about it to you. It was necessary. It had to happen. But it's even in the chain of events that he gives in verse 26, it says, it was necessary that he should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Christ does not receive the glory without going through the trial, the crucifixion, the dying, and the resurrection, and that he is glorified. <clears throat> but he goes on in verse 27 and says, "In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpre- interpreted can't talk, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so you see this reference beginning with Moses. So does this mean he goes to where Moses is first mentioned in the scriptures and says, okay, well, here's Moses, and we're going to talk about Moses, and then we're gonna, we'll are going jump to the prophets. So if you know your Old Testament, the, the first five books, the books of the law, were written by Moses. So whenever they would often say the books of Moses, right, that points to the first five books, and then, he, and then he includes the prophets. And even going further, in this same chapter in verses 44 and 47, there's another encounter of Christ with the disciples where he says, Later on in that encounter, encounter, he points the disciples back to the scriptures. He says, look at the scriptures to understand this. And that is what he's doing here. So this is not just Moses and prophets. This is the writings of Moses and the prophets. So go to what we would consider to be the Old Testament, right? Moses and the prophets may not include every single book that we consider to be the Old Testament, but that is where he's pointing is what we'd say is the Old Testament. And remember, we're all used to having our Old and our New Testament together, right? Our Bibles. New Testament's not written at this time. It, it doesn't exist. They have the Old Testament. The, reading this account, you're like, man, I really wish I had Christ's exposition of the Old Testament telling us about him. How did he interpret that? Why Wouldn't that be awesome, right? It's not recorded. God felt it was not relevant for you to have that specific information because you have the Old Testament. You can read through it. You can see Christ throughout it. You can see it pointing to him. There were a few a few passages I wanted to, to point to that I think are pretty, that are pretty clear that in the Old Testament that point toward Christ and towards Christ's suffering. That, that maybe Christ included, but I, I don't know. But one of the first ones is in Genesis 3.15, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And so this is shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, after they have sinned. But in verse 14 of Genesis 3, it tells us who the Lord is addressing. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14. But when you get into verse 15, it tells us, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And it says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And different translations might say, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is like the first prophecy of the of the messiah coming this serpent this satan christ will crush his head but in the process the serpent will bruise his heel so when you think of, think about this what is what is a worse wound to receive a crushed head or a bruised heel it is the crushed head right so christ the messiah the heel is bruised He dies, and yet he is resurrected. In that, Satan receives a defeat. His head is crushed. Again, in in Numbers chapter 21, so you have that Genesis account pointing towards there would be one who would come and defeat the serpent, and yet it it would not be without a cost. But in Numbers chapter 21, verse, verse 9 specifically, this is another account that we often look at as pointing towards Christ and specifically towards the crucifixion of the Christ. Well, this is an account where the, the, the Israelites are in the desert and once again they're grumbling, right? Right? The people became impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, right, which is a common theme as they're wandering through the desert. You know, they wish they were back as slaves in Egypt because they had it better as slaves than they do as free men living in the desert under God. But so God responds by sending them poisonous serpents to bite them and kill them, right? But they, they recognize that they have sinned. Spoken against the Lord and against you. And they go to Moses and says, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, right? And God doesn't do just a simple task of, okay, they've, they've recognized they were wrong. I'm going to just send the serpents away. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to require an act of faith on their part here. It says in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And verse 9 tells us, So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We often look at this passage as pointing towards Christ crucified on the cross, being raised on the cross. And it takes looking towards Christ on the cross, placing faith in Christ in order to receive salvation. This is a passage that points towards the crucifixion of Christ, towards Christ being raised up. In Psalm 16, verse 10, that's not the noon whistle, just so you know. (laughs) I haven't gone that long. But Psalm 16, verse 10, we used Acts chapter 2 for our scripture reading last week. and In Acts chapter 2, he quotes this particular passage in reference to the Messiah. This is a psalm written by David. And it is, a, it is a psalm that is applicable to David, but there are, it is also applicable to, to Christ. But specifically in verse 10, and Peter talked about this in his sermon at Pentecost, but it said, for you shall not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And when Peter spoke on this. He said, we all know that David's body, his bones are still in the grave here. His, his body has seen corruption. He is, he is dead and in the grave. So who is this psalm talking about, he says? It's talking about Christ, that Christ would be risen from the dead. This psalm points to the resurrection of the Christ. In order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. So pointing to the death of his servant. And just a little bit further down, in Psalm 22, this is one of those psalms that after you've read the account of the resurrection, you go back and read Psalm 22 and you say, wow, there's so many things in here that are in the resurrection. Uh, verse eighteen is one where it says, "They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they they cast lots." Sound familiar to you? Right? If you, within the, the week leading up to Easter, you, you read the account of the crucifixion, you saw that they cast lots for his seamless inner garment because they didn't want to tear it because it was valuable. <clears throat> it just lots of different verses in this psalm that if you read the account of the crucifixion, there's just, they line right up. You have Psalm 69 all as well. I'm not going to go into depth on all these. And then, you know, the classic, Josh read Isaiah 52 through 53 at our sunrise service. But if that's not talking about the crucifixion of Christ, I don't I don't know what is. But Isaiah 52, just beginning in 13. Just talking about the crucifixion of the Christ, all the things that happened. You read this, and then you you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, and you're like, check the box, check the box, check the box. Yes, yes, yes. Nailed it, right? This was prophesied so long before Christ, Christ came. And he's saying, how do you not understand this? It was, it's in there. And I can see how you'd be like, well, I've read that before, but I didn't realize it was about the Messiah, right? And now he's pointing, is it, this this is about the Messiah. This was pointing to God's servant. And then you even have, I, I preach through the book of Jonah, and in Christ's teaching, in Matthew chapter 12, it's verses 39 and 40 if you're taking notes. But there he talks about, you know, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. You know, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. In the same way, it will be three days and three nights in the, in the ground, in the grave. So Christ himself pointed to Jonah, and those three days, death and resurrection. And that's just like a quick little sample of like the most obvious passages, right? So you read through the the Old Testament and you pick up on the themes of the different stories that are going on in there. You recognize even there's so much more that points to Christ. And the Christ is everywhere throughout the Old Testament. And so in, this, in Jesus recounting from the Old Testament all the things that point towards the Messiah suffering, dying, being risen again, wouldn't it have just been easier for Christ to just show up and be like, hey guys, here I am, I'm risen, right? Like, let me just show myself to them, they'll understand, Right? He could have simply spoken with authority, declared that he was the Messiah, and the Messiah had to die and rise again. He could have just saved himself a lot of talking. Instead, he points them back to the authority of the scriptures and how the scriptures were fulfilled in him. Because scripture is sufficient, it is enough. When he said, Where is it at there? You know, how foolish. O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should be looking back to scripture. You should be seeing in there all the things that transpired. This should be making, this should have, oh foolish, right? This should have clicked for you. But how gracious that he comes and he, he gives this to them. So the scriptures are sufficient. They don't need a new revelation from Jesus to show up and just say, hey, I'm him. They have everything that they need in the Old Testament. And Christ, Christ did this all throughout his ministry, right? If you remember Christ's temptation in the desert, what's he, how does he refute the, the devil as he tempts him? Quotes scripture to him, right? Scripture is enough. He doesn't... Doesn't point to his own authority, even though he could have. He points to Scripture. He says, quote Scripture to the devil. And you have other accounts you have, even just in Matthew 22, he's interacting with the scribes about the resurrection. And as he's doing that, he's quoting Scripture to them. How many times does he say, does Christ say, have you not read? He's always, Christ in his ministry is always pointing back to Scripture. Here is your authority. What is your authority, right? Is it your own thoughts or is it the scriptures? Point you back. He appeals to authority, right? That's, that's often a, a tactic in discussion with people is an appeal to authority. Well, so-and-so says, well, you know, this expert says this. Okay, well, here's the ultimate expert. Go back to the scriptures. If you, you want to have a discussion with somebody, take it back to scripture. That is your ultimate authority. But it tells us in verse 27 that he he does this exposition of the beginning with Moses and the prophets. And then in verse 28 it, it says, so they drew near to the village to which they were gathering. They were going. So apparently this Christ exposition of the scriptures pointing to him as the Messiah and the things that the Messiah had to accomplish, took the remainder of their journey. This two- to three-hour walk was spent with Christ going through the Scriptures with him, explaining who he was. And the whole time, them not knowing that he is the Christ, it is hidden from them. It goes on and tells you in the second half of verse 28, say, 28 it says, "...he acted as if he were going farther." Is, is Christ trying to deceive these these men, right? Well, we know that there is no sin in him, so he's, he's not deceiving them. I think it's pointing towards he was following the natural actions of a, somebody who would be a stranger amongst two men. If you're walking with them, you join their group, they're getting to their destination, you don't just say, well, let me just walk into your house with you, right? <laughs> like, well, I, you know... He's on a journey. He's going to continue on. And he's waiting to be invited. There's an invitation that comes. But it's a normal response. It is not an abnormal thing. They don't know that this is Jesus. It'd be expected that a stranger would have his own arrangements. It would be continuing his journey, possibly. But it gives us the response in verse 29. It says, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent right stay with us it's you shouldn't be traveling anymore You're just join with us and it even if you jump down to verse 32 after he reveals himself as Jesus it says did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures so as he's been walking with them explaining the scriptures pertaining to the messiah their hearts are burning they are just excited. They are, and, and we're just going to say goodbye to this man? We're just going to send him on his way? Like, no, he's going to continue on with us, continue fellowship with us. And it says that, and so he went in to stay with them in the end of verse 29. But in verse 30, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. There's a couple things going on here in verse 30. So if he's the guest, would the guest typically be the one to take the bread and break it and serve it? He would be the guest. That is the role of the host, the the master of the party if it's a larger event. But as the host's role, and yet Christ does that. But it tells us when he does this, their eyes are opened and they recognized him. And as you you read through the gospel accounts, Christ breaking the bread, blessing it, passing out, is like, it's a common thing that he does, happens at the Passover meal. That's when we observe communion. That is something that took place when he fed the 5,000, right? Broke the bread and blessed it. This was a common action of Christ as he ate with his disciples, reminiscent of the Last Supper. And keep in mind, this is Sunday. That would have been on Friday. Thursday, I guess. Um, it's only a few days ago. I don't know if these disciples were there or not, but this was a common action of Christ. This would be something that oh, jogs your memory right now. But it tells us, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, so they suddenly instead of being obscured from knowing who this is, they all of a sudden recognize him as Jesus as the Messiah, but it tells us what happens, and he vanished from their sight, right, so as soon as they see that it is. This is Jesus that's been telling us all these things. He's gone. Again, pointing towards, that's one of the really cool things I like about this passage is they don't really know it's Christ the whole time this is taking place. And as soon as they do know it's Christ, he's gone. And What's Christ doing while he's interacting with them? He's pointing them towards the scriptures. He's not saying, look at me, here I am, I'm the Messiah. He's saying, no, look at me, here I am, the Messiah, in the scriptures. Look in here. See it in here. Read it in here. Understand it. Don't look, don't just know it from, like, experiencing it, from seeing him, but look at it, seeing it, in the scriptures. This is your authority. It is enough. It is sufficient. It goes on and tells us, you know, they they are so excited by this, they rush back to Jerusalem, right? They had stopped because it was getting late. It's getting dark. They had told Jesus, you shouldn't continue on because it's getting too late. But they're so excited by this that they now run back to Jerusalem. And that verse 32 where it said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? They didn't have indigestion as Christ talked to them. They, they were excited. The, their hearts were stirred up. They were like, wow, this is amazing. I'd never understood this before. How beautiful, how awesome. So they rushed back to Jerusalem. They can't wait to go tell the other disciples, not only have we seen the Messiah, but we've had it explained to us from the scriptures that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and that all these things that took place had to happen. And then the thing that I found interesting is, so they they run back to Jerusalem, verse 33, it says, they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together. And it says, saying the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. It's easy to read that and think, well, this is the two disciples saying this phrase. But it's actually the eleven who are saying this phrase. These guys run back in to explain we saw Jesus, and before they can even say anything, they're interrupted by the disciples saying, "The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." There's little it's First Corinthians 15:5. There's a note there about how Jesus appeared to Peter. that's like a little reference that gets pulled in here. So somewhere, like after he had appeared to them and they get back to Jerusalem, Christ appeared to Peter as well. But they, they get interrupted by this, right? But it says in verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking and the bread. Let us explain to you what Christ said from the scriptures. And then you continue, if you continue reading through the rest of the chapter, it goes and tells us Christ appears in their midst and does almost the same thing again, points once again to the scriptures. I was thinking about this and, You'll sometimes hear people say when you talk to them about Christ and and the gospel, and they'll say, well, if Jesus would just show up to me, right, just, just show himself to me, or maybe if he could perform a miracle for me, then I'll believe. And it made me think of there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that, you know, Lazarus is suffering. He said, not Lazarus, the rich man is suffering, and he goes to Abraham and says, hey, Send Lazarus to tell my brothers, you know, don't do what I did. Place faith, right? But the response is, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. So even if Lazarus comes back from the dead to your brothers and tells them, they're still not going to believe because they have what they need. The scripture is enough. It is there. So Jesus applies the same principle, speaking with these two disciples, takes them to Moses and the prophets, these writings explaining from scripture what was to take place with the Messiah. And he tells us that scripture is sufficient. We don't have to have special signs and miracles to receive the gospel. We have God's word. And he even says those things on their own, will not convince people it is the word that convinced people It is the word of god that has the power to transform lives and that's the thing i want you to take from this passage there's there's a lot of things you can draw from this but if you remember one thing the word is sufficient christ himself pointed towards the sufficiency of the word that's what i want you to remember Dear Lord, I thank you for this account. I thank you for Jesus, the Messiah. I thank you for this being recorded to remind us that the scriptures are enough, Lord. Help us to remember that as we talk with people, as we witness, as we share, the scripture is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Scriptures make it plain, and then we get to experience that relationship. And this song kind of reflects both of those. It'd be like us coming in and telling each other, He lives. He rose. Well, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. We know that from the Scriptures. And we know that because He's affected our life. We can see it all around. The world can see it, but doesn't believe it. But we can see it and we know it's true let's stand and sing 377 together
1: <clears throat> i serve a risen savior he's in the world today i know that he is living whatever man may say I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me. A long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. In all the world around me, I see His love and care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I hope that he is leading Through all the stormy blast The day of his appearing Shall come at last He lives, he lives Christ Jesus lives today He walks with me and talks with me A long life's narrow way He lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me a long life stair away. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart.
0: Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clear realization by the word of God that you loved us, that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us when we were yet your enemies, sinners, who deserved hell, we thank you that through your word we've come to an understanding that Jesus died and shed his blood and rose again, that we might have life, that he's alive, and that it's all real. And now, by knowing him, we get to enjoy that relationship. We pray, Lord, that Any that might not know him would come to know him. We even know people we're talking to outside of church, and we pray that, Lord, that you'd be working in their hearts through your word, because it is your word that is the power of God and salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Might we go forth rejoicing, excited. We have a message that we can proclaim from your word. Jesus Christ is risen. Thank you so much, in Christ's name, amen.